Hey everybody, this is Josh Hallman. Welcome to the Beyond Mars podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders in aerospace, aviation, and defense. Today, our guest is the one, the only, Nathan Kwok, Vice President of Marketing at Saffron Cabin. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. This is a really exciting discussion we're going to have. Yeah, no, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about a couple of things. Your rise in the aviation industry to what cool initiatives or projects your company is working on in the sector. And lastly, what trends you're seeing in the aviation industry. I, I think we mentioned off camera right before this, I read uh, an article or two in January 2020 talking about great things that are happening uh, or that will happen. And as we all know, March totally changed the, the aviation industry, but there's always opportunity and we'll get to that a little bit later. So before we, we dive into all that, let's talk about you, Nathan. You're currently Vice President of Marketing. For all our listeners out there, how did you get to where you are at Saffron today? Yeah, so actually, I think it's, it's good to start from the very beginning on that because there's a bit of a lesson that I think is worth sharing as far as how I got the job at Saffron because I was actually a student at UCLA working on my engineering degree when I first started working at you know, what was then called C&D Aerospace, and it was acquired a couple times to become part of Saffron. Uh, and at the time, I was in the student group. And uh, I'll tell you what, if you, if you want to learn how to hustle, just being a fundraiser is a great way to learn how to hustle. Because if you can convince people to just give you money, then asking for a job is, is easy in comparison, right? And uh, so that was one of the jobs I had in the student group is we would go and fundraise. And, uh, you know, summer rolls along. And as a result of all these fundraisings, one of the things we do is we go to job fairs and try to fundraise with the companies that are at the job fairs because, you know, they've got the money. So I had all these business cards and, uh, and, you know, my buddies that were in the student group had business cards. And so I had kind of collected them all to put them into a spreadsheet or something. So I have this stack, right, sitting on my desk and it's like March and I'm thinking, oh, I, I kind of need a job during the summer, right? And I'm first year engineer, right? So I'm flipping through all the business cards and I, I didn't really know like where I wanted to work, but I knew I wanted to do something with my degree. And so all the business cards that said like aerospace or something like that on the business card, I like set those aside into a little pile. So, okay, I'm going to start with these guys. And, um, you know, I wasn't let's, so good. Let's at stop right like, there. Did you want it to get into aerospace? Like, were you going that direction or you had no idea? Well, you know, it, I, I knew that I wanted to do something where I'm building something, creating something, designing stuff, right? So I was a, a gearhead growing up. I yeah. was really into cars. And I actually thought I wanted to kind of be in the automotive business, um, kind of going into school. Then I realized that if I was going to really make my way in the automotive business, I had to move to Michigan and be in the native California. <laughs> I have some friends that are that, that are there right now. Yeah, exactly. I, I, that, and I was like, okay, you know what? Michigan winter is not so great. Super but, cold. Yeah, but... On the other hand, aerospace and defense is pretty big here in Southern California. Yeah. And so there's just more opportunities uh, when it comes to that. So, and of course, you know, I love airplanes and rockets and all that kind of stuff as well. I mean, it's all really cool just to, just to see it, how it all comes together. So, so at that point though, I was like, you know what, I'm going to be open to anything, even if it's in Michigan or wherever, but if it has something that looks like they want to hire an engineer, that's all I care. I just needed a job just like anyone else. Right. right. And so, yeah, flipping through the things and just started cold calling people, right? I mean, or cold emailing them. And so I had probably about like 15 or 20 cards that looked like they were promising. And, um, you know, you never know where you're going to get the opportunity, right? And so 
the guy's business card, his name was Mike McCarthy. We remain friends to this day. He was head of engineering for what was called C&D then. And they were smaller back in those days. They were probably, you know, 250 million a year revenue. So a lot smaller than, than Saffron is today. But yeah, sent him a note. He's like, oh, send me your resume. And, um, and I think the other lesson too is like, you never know what on your resume someone's going to like. Yeah. Right. So, so don't just put the stuff that you think is like your best accomplishment, you know, put some stuff about you as a person. Right. And uh, he's like a big tennis player. He loves playing tennis. And I, you know, I had on my resume that I played tennis in high school and I like to play tennis. And, and that's kind of what caught his eye. Obviously I needed some qualifications and so on, but Hey, I mean, a freshman in college, you know, it's not like they I can don't have much, that yeah. much. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I didn't really know anything. So uh, yeah, he gave me a shot and uh, got in there and, you know, just worked my butt off. And, uh, and that's kind of how I got going with things. And I think, um, I think the thing that really also set me on the right path, you know, he, he gave some really great advice. One of the first things he told me is he said, Hey, you know, infiltrate the company, right? That was his piece of advice. He's like, infiltrate the company. And what he meant by that was, you know, you never know where you're going to meet someone that's going to give you a good piece of information. So if you've got a task and you think, you know, to, you need to go to person X, you know, ask for a reference and, and just meet another person to find out more, right? Like you're like a private investigator, just trying to figure out how everything works, right? So that was kind of the approach I always took during the internship. And it's also not about bothering the same person every time, right? So that way you can kind of spread you know, spread your energy around and um, made a lot of connections, learned a lot about how other people's jobs work. And, uh, you know, along the way and kind of applying that philosophy throughout life, um, you find out too that maybe what you thought was your goal in life is, is not exactly what, you know, what it should be. And so that exposed me over time to a lot of different functions, right? Um, and, you know, I, I worked at other places between that freshman year in college and, and eventually made my way back to what became Zodiac Aerospace and then Saffron. But as a result of that philosophy, I ended up taking a lot of different jobs at the company because I was just really open to doing different things. And uh, like I said, you never know when you meet someone, you can do something for them. Even though that's not your traditional job description, it kind of helps you move around laterally. So uh, I started out as an engineer there, but I quickly got into like product development. And then I was in business development and doing sales. And then that led me into contracts and contracts led me into marketing. And then the next thing you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's been 15 years since I started working there, but you're not even in anywhere near the function that you started, but along right. the way you learn a lot. And, and, uh, and I think that really can propel your career. So yeah. just being open is a great, you know, it's a great thing. Now, you know, you mentioned something really, really interesting that, and I, I, I'm a true believer in this too. I would say is don't stick to just what you're doing. You have to be good at what you do. But you right. also need to make sure that you're looking left, looking right, looking up, looking down, and and just asking questions. I think you you know you were networking, you were finding ways to talk to someone or trying to get a reference, um, so that one you're not annoying them. That's when you're just starting out. But two, I mean that is a career builder um, when you need to reach out for questions on your your what are you're doing on your project or next steps. Uh, or they might be that door to that next career step for you. I mean, you, like you, you mentioned that you were an engineer starting out, you went into production, you've done um, sales, you've already seen sales teams, contracts, and now marketing. Um, I mean, you're, you've almost touched every department. Um, so I, I think that's really cool. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think also never saying no to, to stuff. I mean, sometimes you find opportunities because you're doing all of this networking and infiltrating the company, as I mentioned. But, you know, when someone asks you and gives you an opportunity, even if it doesn't sound good, you know, I pretty much always say yes to stuff, right? If, if, if it's something where I can help the company and help someone, and even if it's just help someone that maybe they don't seem like they're that important, you never know. Like, you never know what it's going to lead to. And, um, and that was also another thing that kind of created opportunities. Uh, and eventually you get a reputation for being open to doing anything. And so people are more likely to kind of give you an opportunity that doesn't seem like it would actually fit because, you know, maybe they like you, you're going to do a good job and they think that, that you can learn from it. So I think that kind of openness and, and kind of welcoming, welcoming people to, to, to give you a challenge is uh, also, you know, having that reputation, I think helps you move up too. You know, you also, you just brought up another, so the first you're bringing up, you know, make sure that you're networking. The second is don't say no. And I think people sometimes get stuck here and say, well, you know, I don't want to overburden myself or, 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 you know, make myself too thin. As I've risen in the company, I'm sure you have, you know, the people, the guys and gals that say yes and step in to opportunities that are maybe way outside their wheelhouse or a stretch for them. Those are the ones you want to promote. I mean, I'm looking for people on teams when I, and I'm sure that people above me in the company are looking for people on teams that, that lean in and say yes. Um, and so I, I, I cannot think of a time where I, I said yes, and it ended up hurting my career. I right. learn something every single time. Now I may not have been there forever, you know, but I, right. I you're definitely learning, uh, you know, different parts as, as you know, all the different notches on your belt for all the different departments that you probably said yes to that were probably a little outside your wheelhouse. Right. Right. Actually the crazier the, the, the request is usually the better it is. Right. <laughs> the, 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 and, and if it sounds just like, like, Oh, you want me to do that? Like, okay, that's, that's gotta be a good one then. Right. So yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it also makes you more, more usable. Um, executives, I know, really look for people that um, want to broaden their, their skills. Um, and it, it makes you more useful in meetings because you can speak to it. Um, I, I just think all around saying yes, the people that say no, or that's not in my job description are probably are, are not making it to mm -hmm. the, I would say, director, vice president level. It just doesn't happen. If it does, it was a mistake. Uh, that's yeah, a and personal opinion. Exactly, and and if you stay in a narrow lane, just the math works against you as well, right? You're just not going to be open to as many opportunities. And you know, for some people, that's that's what they want. They they don't want tons of change, and they they want to just kind of stay in a narrow discipline, or or just or just do the same job. I mean, some people are happy just staying in the job that they're at, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're really yeah. interested in moving up, you gotta you gotta help the odds, you know, work for you, right? Yeah. No, this is this is great. Uh, let's talk about your current company. So you you started as an engineer. You played tennis. You got your job. You you know a ping pong around at different companies and end up at Saffron. Uh, tell us about Saffron. Um, is it a small mom and pop? Is it a multi billion dollar company? And then kind of walk us through what you're currently doing in your department. What they do. What cabin is? Yeah. So absolutely. Um, yeah. Saffron's actually not. 
you know, it's not that well known, but it's a pretty big company. It's a global 500 company. It's huge. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, 20 plus billion a year in turnover. Um, they're based in France. They're actually the largest uh, aerospace company that's headquartered in France. Uh, although probably you should consider that Airbus is, is, even though it's not technically headquartered in France, they're, they're larger. But aside from Airbus, I'd say they're the second largest kind of French aerospace company. Um, and they do everything related to aerospace. Um, their core business is the equipment on commercial aircraft. That's kind of the biggest part of their business. Uh, they're actually quite well known for a joint venture called CFM that they have with GE. And so they make a very large portion of all the aircraft engines that are, that are in the world, including uh, those on the 737 and the A320. Um, they also have a joint venture with Airbus called Arian that makes rockets. So they're in uh, the space industry as well. Uh, and it's quite diverse. I mean, within the aerospace and defense sector, they make all other kinds of equipment on the aircraft. So landing gear, brakes, uh, they do avionics systems. They do. Uh, they also do kind of non-aircraft equipment. They do a lot of helicopter equipment. So anything that flies and even some stuff that doesn't, there's also some de defense equipment that they make too. Um, and the part of Saffron that I work for, it's called Saffron Cabin, is the inside of the aircraft. So it's really what you would imagine if you've flown on an aircraft, you have flown on saffron equipment, you've touched it, you've worked with it, you've sat in it. Uh, it's overhead bins, it's lavatories, it's seats, it's the walls, the floor, the ceiling of the aircraft. And that's really what cabin does. Um, so it's probably the most consumer facing part of the business. Your average person obviously doesn't do anything with the landing gear or the engine, right? But they you do hope not. Seat, right? <laughs> yeah, you hope not, right? <laughs> it, it, there's also aero safety equipment like airbags and escape slides. And yeah, sometimes people get involved with those, but really, you know, we really don't want that to ever be used. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes they do need to be used. Uh, but the cabin is the everyday stuff, right? So it's uh, making bigger overhead bins so you can fit your bags and not have to, you know, check them at the gate. It is making a more comfortable seat. It's uh we're always trying to find ways to make the lavatories cleaner and, you know, smell nice and look good and uh, ovens that make food better. Right. So this is uh, this is really kind of our bread and butter business. And uh, it's, it's pretty interesting because it's something that people can relate to. And uh, it's something that we personally ourselves as travelers use. So it's it's very close to, you know, close to us in our everyday lives in some ways. If you could disclose and, and you don't have to, is there any projects or initiatives that Cabin is currently working on that you're really excited about um, and would like to share? Yeah, yeah. So I think there are a couple of things that are um, kind of in the news that I think capture a lot of people's imagination. So the first thing is electric vehicles, right? So we've seen Teslas and electric cars driving around, and this is going to become, I think, an everyday occurrence yeah. um, for aircraft one day as well, right? Mm -hmm. So the first of these vehicles that um, are going to be all electric are what's called electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. They're essentially electric helicopters, or another way to think of them is like a drone. You guys have probably seen those little drones that you can fly around and take pictures with and stuff. Just magnify the size to the point where it can carry people, right? So is, uh, it's so like it's, Uber in the sky, like a helicopter taking people, but it's autonomous and electric? Exactly. That's the idea. The, the vision, you know, and, and Uber has a division called Uber Elevate, which actually they just recently sold uh, to a company called Joby. But they have this vision for what they call multimodal transportation. And the idea is that you land, let's say, from your international flight at LAX and you need to get to downtown LA. Well, you could take an Uber, but if there's a lot of traffic, then you might take uh, kind of an Uber helicopter or what's called an eVTOL vehicle that's gonna take you the vast majority of the way or it might take you the entire way. Hmm. And uh, let's say that the landing pad is not on the building that you're trying to go to, 
then maybe you have the Uber take you a block or maybe it's actually a scooter or something else. It's this idea though that we link together different forms of transportation digitally. Uh, those are electrified so that they're greener. And um, by kind of linking them in a smart way, we can make the travel process more seamless and it can help get people to point A, uh, from point A to point B faster. And so the EV toll vehicle is a piece of that. And uh, there are different kind of forms that it can come in. Um, the most common one is one that's going between, let's say, five and 40 miles. Um, and it's, it's in some ways, it's like a flying car, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it just it goes vertical. Are... Yeah, it's, it's very Jetsons-like, right? And battery technology has advanced to the point where uh, they can be charged fast enough and they can hold enough power that they can actually carry people. Uh, there's still some, some definite challenges there, but, uh, but it, it could really change the way that we, that we travel. Yeah, for, every, for everyone listening, how far is this out there? I mean, is this something that's currently in R&D? Is this something I could see next year, five years, 10 years? Where, where are we in the process? Well, it's, it's a good question. I mean, if you would talk to a company like Uber, they'll tell you, hey, five years from now, you guys are going to be flying around on these things, right? There are a lot of logistical and regulatory <laughs> hurdles to making yeah. it happen, right? Actually, the part about making the vehicle fly and carry people is the easy part. The hard part is how do you kind of deconflict the airspace? How do you create the infrastructure to charge these things? How do you deal with noise? Because they, they do tend to be kind of noisy when there's a lot of them in the air. And is there going to be that kind of, um, kind of municipal adoption, uh, governmental adoption uh, in order to enable that? So... I do think that though the first way that you'll see that happen is, is carrying packages before it starts carrying people. And it might be that you have mid-sized drones that are not big enough to carry people that start delivering packages first. And that might also start happening in rural areas or areas that are really mountainous where it's hard to get a car and, and then it kind of expands from there. So you're not gonna turn around probably and, and be in the Jetsons in, in five years or maybe 10. But honestly, that's not it's not really for me to say. I mean, we, we do, try to make our best view of what the market's going to do. Um, and Saffron tends to be pretty conservative about the way that they project the market. So we're certainly not going to better hold business on it, but we do think it's going to happen. Um, the technology certainly can enable it. There's, there's a lot of good use cases for it. And, um, and yeah, there could be a day when helicopter travel becomes a lot more common than it is now. And, and right now it's, it's quite rare. I mean, it's a really specialized thing. Um, and it'll become more accessible to people, I think, in the future than, than it is today. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the way that we move and travel um, is very 2D right now. You know, we're mm -hmm. literally on flat and yeah, I know there's mountains, but it's flat. It's one, you know, one dimension or two dimensions, if you will. Uh, you have Elon Musk, who's got the boring company. He wants to go underground. Right. You, you got... Saffron and some other companies that are saying, hey, it's helicopters, it's aviation, we could, we could fly certain things, um, maybe not the whole way. I like that, you know, you walk a few blocks and get on this helicopter, it takes you to two or three blocks from maybe the theater or something you want to see downtown LA, um, and you can get back home with no traffic. Um, right. it's, it's really cool. I, I love all these different, so you're getting 3D. Is what I, was, I, was, I was trying to get to on, on our, uh, the grid, a 3D grid, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And actually, the, you mentioned the Boring Company, um, kind of Hyperloop is another form of transportation that, that we're also looking at, um, because the, the cabin in a Hyperloop type of situation is very similar to that of an aircraft. So, you know, I mentioned EV tall vehicles are like flying cars. Well, actually, these underground high speed um, rails are actually more like airplanes that don't have wings. 
because they're in a pressurized tube yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, the, the cabin and the kind of evacuation requirements and so on are actually quite similar to that of an aircraft. And the speed is not, not quite as fast as an aircraft, but it still has a lot of the same constraints. So that could also be a really interesting form of transportation. Now that's, that's longer range than an eVTOL vehicle. And it's very much point to point. Um, but, but the cool thing about uh, the Hyperloop type of transportation compared to a train is that because um, it's in this tube, it can actually turn corners a lot sharper than a high-speed rail that's above ground and then just kind of attached on the bottom with a train track, right? And that's really important actually, because when it comes to laying down rail, the hardest part is, is the fact that it has to cut through some place where you don't want it to go, right? It goes to the middle of some town or it goes through a sensitive environmental habitat. And when, and the faster the train goes, the straighter the track has to be. So it really limits uh, where you can put the track. And that's actually a big uh, inhibitor in, in doing high-speed rail. So the hope is that uh, Hyperloop, the fact that it can go both above and underground and the fact that it can turn corners uh, with a much smaller radii, uh, that, that could make it easier to actually achieve it. So you know, that, that's a pretty promising technology, but of course it also has its own, its own hurdles. Um, and, you know, it's a tr it, it takes a, a lot of government support, I think, in order to make high-speed rail happen because so many different moving pieces have to kind of come together. Um, but it's something we're following. I think it's really interesting. Um, are, are you involved in the, the cabin areas for those uh, uh, Hyperloop trains or, or vehicles? Yeah, so we have, and I can't, I can't really disclose too much there, but uh, we've, we've done some design briefs with, uh, you know, so Hyperloop is kind of a generic term yeah. for a type of transportation, and there are different Hyperloop companies that are mm -hmm. making vehicles, so we've, we've worked with a couple of them uh, looking at doing mock-ups. They're still in the pretty early stage uh, for most of the projects, but um, since the cabin is similar to an aircraft cabin, they've, they've come to us for some expertise. That's really cool. And, it, you know, it, this technology, you know, as we talk about this podcast is beyond Mars, but there's technologies that you guys are working on that could definitely be analogous to what we would use on Mars or any other other planet if we're we can't have above ground transportation. If we have to have everything, you know, underground due to weather or just the uh, terrain, um, we, we might find, um, you know, Hyperloops that have Saffron, you know, designs on, on the inner, inner cabins. Um, so definitely usable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think one of the interesting things too, is, as it relates to, let's say, traveling to Mars or traveling in these really unorthodox ways is one of the things we study is, the psychology of, of kind of tran being transported in a different kind of environment, right? Because most people are used to, whether it's an airplane or a car, they're kind of used to sitting in a seat and they've got the window to their right and they can kind of look out the window and get a sense of how fast they're going, get a sense of the passage of time because of daylight changing. And, you know, traditional air transport is not so fast that the change of the day is disorienting, right? Um, and also the fact that you can kind of control the window and all these things, this is sort of our norm, right? But some of these other forms of transportation uh, are a little different, right? If you're traveling for a long time underground, as an example, or you're traveling uh, in a vehicle where you can't really have much of a window, uh, or you might be traveling in a vehicle like a supersonic vehicle that's going to be kind of cramped, um, you know, how do you deal with that, right? And, um, and then also when you talk about very, very fast forms of transportation, even the fact that you're able to travel through time zones so quickly can be kind of disorienting, right? It's, it's a little bit weird to get into a vehicle, it's daytime, and then an hour later you get out and it's nighttime, right? So, so these are, there's a lot of psych, you know, psychology 
that goes into designing an interior to make people feel comfortable and make it feel natural. Uh, and so I think that's also really interesting as we get into some of these other forms of transportation, especially if it's multimodal, you know, you're above ground, you're underground, you're going fast, then you're going slow. And it's, you know, it can be really, really challenging um, to make that feel natural. For so you, you guys are looking at ways to make sure it's seamless and that the psyche of people traveling uh, would, you know, not be wrecked too much. It's kind of analogous to um, the uh, Irish coffees. I don't know if you know the, 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 the background, but uh, Irish coffees were created by the uh, airline industry because of uh, turbulence. Um, when oh, people I didn't know that. Yeah, so uh, too much turbulence, give them some Irish coffees, and voila, you, uh, you have some very calm customers. So very, very similar. Um, so it, we're, we're getting close to our time here, but I really want to hear from you. You're, you're, you know, front lines in the aviation industry. Um, it's anybody's guess right now, uh, but you're, you're a little bit closer to the guests. What are you seeing as trends as we're, we're about to, you know, we're, we're starting 2021 uh, and beyond. You have Boeing in the max, all that they're dealing with there. You have COVID, you have a lot going on in aviation. What are you seeing and what, what's the general trends you're, you're, you're really looking at at Tapron? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the industry really got wrecked with the pandemic. Um, sales everywhere are way, way down as a result of the, the complete collapse in, in air travel. Um, we are seeing it coming back to life. Uh, so we, it certainly has bottomed out and it's, it's back on an upward trend. But for us, at least on the interior side, the biggest thing is cabin hygiene. I mean, it's mm -hmm. all about building confidence in the traveler, uh, demonstrating to them that the aircraft is safe, that it's clean. And it's not just being clinically clean and sort of scientifically clean, but also feeling clean, looking yeah. clean, right? Just so that way you have that level of comfort that you can have that, that you're you know, flying in a safe, uh, safe cabin. So we're looking at a lot of technologies around how can we sanitize surfaces and also make things touchless, right? So passengers would prefer just not to even have to touch things at all. Um, especially around the lavatory, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all in that, right? So I do think in the very near future, you're going to see a lot more touchless activation of anything that you would normally have to touch, but in particular around the areas uh, in the lavatory. So, you know, our hope is that you really can go into a lavatory, do everything you need to do with really not having to touch anything with your hands. So you, the faucet would be the obvious thing, but you get your soap that comes out automatically. We're kind of just used to that. I mean, you go to the gas station bathroom and you don't have to yeah. touch open the and, and the faucet, but also can you lock and unlock the door without, without touching it? Can you open and close the door without touching it? Can you, the waste lid, right? Can the waste lid open and close without touching it? Can you get the flush button to activate without touching it? So all those things, that's, that's certainly going to become something of a norm, I think. Um, and then the other thing is, is surfaces. Can we make surfaces safer? So I think people still uh, want to have this confidence that uh, if a surface can actively kill the virus, you know, that's, that's the second best thing to having something that's touchless because not everything can be touchless, right? So there's a lot of, you know, making things motorized everywhere can be really difficult. It can add a lot of cost and weight. But if you can put some kind of treatment into the surface that cleans itself rather than having to wipe it down all the time, that's nice because the airlines are doing a lot to really clean everything and, and sanitize the entire aircraft. And then passengers are going in there on top of that and kind of doing their own thing, right? Yeah. And if you know that a surface is self-cleaning or self-killing of the virus, um, then that's even better. And there actually are technologies out there that can do that. And of course, getting them into an aerospace environment is the next step. 
Uh, how do we embed them into the kinds of materials that are needed inside the aircraft cabin? Because these are really specialized materials. You don't just, you know, a plastic handle is not a plastic handle in, in an aircraft. It's, it's a very specialized plastic that, you know, has these flammability resistant additives in it that have to meet a lot of other requirements for durability and weight, right? So now can we get those special additives into those materials such that even if you don't wipe it down with your own, you know, sanitizing wipe, it'll kill the virus on its own. And so, um, and that's a great thing also to be able to reassure the passengers that, hey, we're cleaning stuff, but it also cleans itself. Um, and then I think the third thing is, it, can we find ways to also clean surfaces without having to use so many chemicals? Um, because that's also another, that's sort of the counterpoint that people have noticed that, yeah, they, they do want to use a, a really effective chemical cleaner on things, but if you can find a way to effectively remove the virus without having to use chemicals, that's even better, right? And so sometimes people have sensitivities to chemicals, they might have an allergy to it. And, and of course, um, one of the big things is we want to make flying really inclusive, right? Uh, just like trying to get peanuts off of the plane was a, was a big deal for people, right? Yeah. And even though that's, a, that's a simple solution, this is a little bit harder, right? Um, so I think that's another area of research. So definitely, um, I do think even as it is today, you know, flying is very safe. The air is, is as clean as they are in a hospital. Yeah. Um, and uh, while it is difficult to transmit the virus through a surface, you know, the more that we can do, the better, right? And so I think the industry is really trying to figure out every single thing they can do to just make that flight as squeaky clean as possible. And it's, it's just going to be as fresh and nice as, you know, the day it roll off the assembly line when you walk in there. And if they can get to that level, you know, the public's going to feel a lot better about getting back on the plane. And that's really what we all want. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Another, another thing with the chemicals, I know they can be corrosive or, um, you know, when you're wiping with Clorox or whatever they're going to wipe with, sporocidal uh, or whatever, um, that wears down on your materials that you have in that airplane. So that right. general maintenance changes, that, that equation, the cost changes for that. So I know the airlines are looking at what are certain right. strategies that we can do to make sure that our, our, our customers are are happy and safe um, and that we're not totally wrecking our plane um, just to get to that point. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. And, and um, you might've seen uh, Saffron actually signed a, a, a kind of an MOU, a partnership agreement with 3M, the company yeah. 3M. I just uh, saw that look article, yeah. Okay, great, yeah. So yeah, so I, I've been working a lot with 3M lately and we're looking at exactly that. And they actually have some amazing technology that um, can reduce the amount of chemicals that are used. And so can't really disclose too much about it right now, but, um, but that's something that you'll be seeing probably in the near future. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm always worried about touching even the screens uh, with the uh, uh, watching my movies. I want to watch my movie, but it's like how many other people have touched that screen? Yeah, yeah. You know, a couple of years from now, you're not going to have to touch it anymore. You're going to control it through your phone. That's, that's something that we already offer. It just it hasn't made its way onto every aircraft. But I think uh, in a few years, that, that's going to be the norm. You just yeah. you, you sync it up with your phone and everything gets controlled from there. So that, that'll be a nice plus. That's awesome. Well, Nathan, thank you so much. I have, I, I've loved to hear uh, your background, how you got to where you are right now at Saffron, uh, what your company does, uh, really cool things. I mean, oh my gosh. And lastly, uh, just the general trends. I am excited to hear that things have turned around. We've bottomed out um, and that we're gonna come out safer uh, and, and better for it. Thank you so much for being on and uh, I hope to talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much, Josh. It's been a pleasure being on the show. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Take care.